I remember several years ago, it was very early in my Christian life, and I had discovered the Word of God in a very impacting way. I was brought up in a denominational, traditional church that did not teach God's Word, neither did it encourage that God's Word should be read. And so when I came to know Christ and was introduced to the Word of God and had the Spirit of God living in me to help me understand it, I really fell in love with the Bible. And my first Bible was an NIV paperback uh, copy that was given to me at a Christian outreach that I had attended. And on the front cover, it just bore the words, um, the book of life. That's what it said. It just said the book of life on the front. And it was, of course, the Bible. And I wore that Bible right down until both covers were gone and pages were missing, you know. And I remember on one occasion, I was uh, at my cousin's house just visiting. I was single at the time. And my aunt was there. And we were all going to church together, and it was the church that I had grown up in. That was the uh, denomination that we were going to that morning. And it was not typical that people would bring their Bibles to church, but I always had mine uh, with me at, the, at that part of my life, you know. And I remember my aunt looked at me, and she said, what book is that? And I showed it to her, the cover, and she read the cover, and she said, the book of life. She said, I should read that. And I said, yes, you should. <laughs> but I'll never forget that. You know how I, it struck me how someone who went to church every week was so unfamiliar with God's word that they could barely recognize it when they saw it. Well, the Bible truly is the book of life. That's what it is. It's not just sermon fodder or a collection of proverbs and parables or articles and fables that we use to try to figure out what we're supposed to do in life like we would with a fortune cookie or a horoscope. But rather, the Word of God is a living manuscript. It's a unified and complete revelation that gives to us a picture of something. It reveals Jesus Christ. As we read the Old Testament, even just starting in Genesis and then beginning to move our way through it, a central figure begins to emerge. We begin to see the picture of a king, his lineage, his nature, his purpose. Right in the book of Genesis, God speaks during the time that he was cursing the serpent. And he said that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And from the very beginning, it gives us a clue to what God is doing and why he's doing it within the world. As you move through Genesis and then into Exodus and through the Torah, you begin to get a fuller picture of what God is doing as he gives the picture of the Lamb of God being sacrificed to cover sin that the death angel would pass over. When you see the commands, you begin to learn the heart of God. As you move then into Samuel and ultimately come to the person of David and then the lineage of David, you begin to realize that God is seeking to bring forth a king into the world. And then as we come into the New Testament, we see the fulfillment of that person. And we recognize the person of Christ who God from the very beginning was seeking to set forth and demonstrate to the world that we might know who he is. He does that through his word. The word of God also has power to give to individuals that which it contains. And if the Bible is the book of life, then that means that the words in the Bible have the power to impart life to those that receive them and allow them to work within their lives. That's what the Word of God does. And it does that like nothing else that exists in all of the planet. There is no power 
like the power of the word of God. Jeremiah the prophet said that it was like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. The writer of Hebrews says it's like a two-edged sword that pierces to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow, and it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart, and there is nothing hidden from its eyes. What that means is that there's no area of any one of our lives that the word of God, when it is employed to do its work or allowed to do its work, that it doesn't perfect and complete what it can do. And so the word of God is so incredibly powerful because it gives life to us. It contains life. Now, for the past two years on Wednesday nights, we've been systematically studying from the Old Testament books of Deuteronomy all the way through to the end of 2 Kings. It's a period of history that covers about a thousand years of God's dealing with the world through his people, Israel. It's from the time that they came out of Egypt and went into the promised land all the way to the time when they go into captivity and they depart from the promised land because of their sin, where we left off at the end of 2 Kings. And what we're about to do in our journey through the scriptures on Wednesday nights is for a season we're going to transition into a study of the New Testament, from the old into the new, which we will begin next week when we begin the book of Luke together. But tonight, what I'd like to do is just get into the church bus altogether and maybe go on a guided tour through the time period that stretches from the captivity, where we left off in Kings, to the incarnation of Christ, where he first came into the world, that is the first coming of Jesus. And The reason why I'd like to take the time to do that tonight is so that as we begin our study in the New Testament, each one of us would understand it in a way like we never have before. That when we come to a passage and we see something referenced, we have a framework wherein we can say, oh yeah, that's why that's there. That's why that's in the Bible, or that's what that means. And so tonight we look at the history, what took place with God, his work in the world through his people, from the time that Israel goes into captivity until the time that God sends his son into the world. Now, where we left off, the Jews were finally carried away by King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and they were brought out of their land as exiles into Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq. And there they were for 70 years. Now, Moses had told the children of Israel that if they were to disobey God and begin to walk contrary to the precepts and ways that he had laid out for them, that they would not keep possession of the land that he had given to them through the promise to Abraham. That their sin would cause them to be taken out of the land. And so they turned from God, and God was patient with them for a thousand years almost. But then they came to a point where God said, I can no longer not judge the sin of Israel. And so he intervened, and they were removed them from their land because of their idolatry, their apostasy, and their disobedience. Why was it 70 years? I mean, did God just kind of spin a time dial and say, well, how long should they be chastised for? And and 70 was the number that came up. Why was it 70 years? Well, God gives the reason. The reason was because for 490 years, the children of Israel failed to give the land its rest. See, they were commanded that every seven years, or rather every six years, 
They were to give the land a break and they weren't to farm the land for one full year. So six years of farming and then one year of rest. Well, they neglected that law for 490 years. And so God said, you know what? I'm going to give the land the 70 years it has coming. And so my people will be gone from that land for that time span of 70 years. Now, there's a few things to consider that took place during that time while the Jews were exiled in Babylon. And this is what we need to understand from it. First of all, is that though they were dispossessed of the land, that is not living in it, they did maintain ownership of it. See, the ownership or the title to that land was not something that was conditioned on their obedience. That was given to them by promise. Remember, God gave promise to Abraham. And he said, I'm giving you this land. And he didn't lay conditions on it, didn't say as long as you. He said, it's yours. And the land remained theirs, but they did not have possession of it. Ownership was by promise, but possession was conditioned on obedience. And they lost possession of the land because of their disobedience, but they didn't lose ownership of it. And therefore, God would bring them back. Now, I believe that there are many things in our lives, even as God's people today, that we have ownership of because of his promise, but that we do not possess, at least to the fullness that we could. I think it happens all the time. I mean, if you look at the promises of the Bible, the Bible says that every promise that God gives is yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Meaning we have ownership of every promise that God gives in the Bible. They are ours. Not to be earned, not for God to remit them over time. They are ours from the moment we get saved. The riches of his glory is given to us. But how often does it happen that we don't have possession of the things that we actually own? It's true, it happens. God wills for us to have a healthy, wholesome existence. That doesn't mean it's perfect and flawless and that we never go through sickness or difficulty. But overall, that's his will for our lives. It's God's will that we have a happy, healthy marriage and a healthy, happy family life. You can go through and just look at what God does for his people. That's his will. We own those things. But when we walk contrary to the will of God, sometimes we don't possess the very things that we own. That's what happened to the children of Israel during that time. They were dispossessed of it, though they maintained ownership. And when that's true, there's always hope. You realize that? There's always hope in the Lord. Also, though it was a severe chastisement that God brought on them for those 70 years, God did not forsake them because of it. God walked with them through the captivity that they had to endure. And we know that for two reasons. First of all, because he left himself a voice wherever his people were. He placed the prophet Daniel in the very palace of King Nebuchadnezzar in the courts of Babylon. He gave himself a voice there and then issued forth powerful prophecies, even probably saving King Nebuchadnezzar. We'll probably see him in heaven because of the things that God did in his life through Daniel's ministry. He left Ezekiel amongst the captives, the people that were scattered throughout the land. Ezekiel was the voice of God to those people that were carried away. And God left the prophet Jeremiah in Israel for those poor of the land that were left behind. And so God, faithful to leave himself a voice wherever his people were, not willing to forsake his people. Not only a voice, but he also preserved and protected them even while they were under his discipline. You recall the story of Esther, and if you're not familiar with it, you should read it. It's a real good one. But it's a story of something that took place during the time that the children of Israel were carried away while they were in captivity. 
And a plot was hatched by a Jew hater named Haman. And God, through his love and his providence, raised up a set of circumstances and people to miraculously keep his people alive and even to prosper and bless them while they were there in that captivity in Egypt. So though they were chastised, they were not abandoned. And that also is a reason for you and I to have great hope. Because there are times in our Christian life that we endure the chastisement of God. Hebrews chapter 12 promises that we're going to go through the chastisement of God. It says that if we're his sons and that we're loved by him, that we're going to endure those seasons where he disciplines us. But when we're going through discipline, he doesn't abandon us to just go through it alone. He walks with it, with us through it. And that means he feels the very pain that we feel while we're going through those things. See, he loves us enough that he's going to use the pain of those seasons to change us, to transform us, and help us to get free of things. But he doesn't abandon us in it. He walks with us through it. And God walked through it with his people. It's also important to note during those 70 years, while they were in captivity, that there was a transition of world powers. When they were carried away, Babylon, led by King Nebuchadnezzar, they were the ones that held the throne of world domination during that time. The strongest kingdom that has lived or existed since those days was Babylon. But during the time that the children of Israel were there, they kind of lost their grip. Nebuchadnezzar died and his son Belshazzar was a little bit apathetic about maintaining the power that had been left in his hand. And he was naive to the rising power of Persia. And so in about 540 BC, Babylon the Great was overtaken by Cyrus and Darius the Mede and the Medo-Persian Empire replaced the strength of Babylon and what it had formerly been. Now, the reason that's important is this. is because it was King Cyrus, the one who was the monarch or the sovereign over the Persian Empire, as we'll call it from here moving forward. He was the one that issued the decree or gave permission for the Jews then to return from Babylon and then go back to Israel. And the amazing thing about Cyrus is that God prophesied that Cyrus would let them go, even calling him by name, 175 years before he came to power. In the book of Isaiah, and I've asked you to turn there, it's Isaiah chapter 44, verse 26. Just listen to what God says. And keep in mind as I read this, that this was spoken and recorded in the year 712 BC. He says this, It says that he, speaking of God, confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers, who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited, to the cities of Judah, you shall be built, and I will raise up her waste places, who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, who called you by your name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, 
I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. And it wasn't until the year 537 B.C. that Cyrus came into power in Persia. And the amazing thing is this, is that the Bible gives us no record anywhere of someone bringing this scripture to Cyrus. Somehow God put it in Cyrus's heart to find this passage out, and he found it. And when he saw his name spoken by the God of the universe 175 years before he came to power, he was so moved by that that he was willing to let the children of Israel leave freely. Now, that's an amazing thing, because when you contrast that with Pharaoh in Egypt all those years previously, remember when Moses said, let my people go? And he knew it would cost him to let the people go. And he, it did cost him, <laughs> actually, quite a bit more than he even thought that it could. But here Cyrus is moved by God to let the children of Israel go, and thus he does, and they go back. So 70 years they're in captivity, and then they go back into the land. That brings us to the second stage of this history, and that is what happened after that captivity. What happened after the children of Israel returned from Babylon, now Persia, and now they come back into the land of Israel. Well, it's about 500 BC at this time, roughly, give or take. And I'm just giving you that to, to kind of keep the timeline straight in your mind as best as I can. About 500 BC. God moves upon the heart of a man named Zerubbabel. He's actually the grandson of Jeconiah or Jehoiachin, one of the last kings of Israel. He was a ruler or a governor over a Jewish province in Persia. And he leads the group of people, 42,000 Jews in number, that depart from Persia and go back into the land of Israel. He takes with him Jeshua, who is the high priest, and they begin to return. The first thing that they begin to do when they get there is to rebuild the temple. They don't build the city. They don't strengthen the wall. The whole thing is just in ruins. It's been ransacked and abandoned. But the first thing they do, the first order of business is that they want to reestablish and reinstitute the worship of God. And so they clean up the Temple Mount and they begin to lay the foundation for what will become the second temple. About 80 years later, he's joined by Ezra. And you'll recognize that name because the book of Ezra is in your Bible. The history of what took place. 80 years after Zerubbabel, Ezra comes and he restores the law and the custom to that temple that's been now reconstructed. And then afterwards, a few years later, Nehemiah returns then to build the wall of the city and to begin to rebuild the city itself. And so Zerubbabel first to build the temple and then Ezra and Nehemiah to reestablish the law and the custom and then to rebuild the wall of the city. All of that happening uh, in that first hundred years from the time that they return uh, from the captivity. So between 500 B.C. and 400 uh, B.C. Now, a couple of things to consider about that period of time um, <clears throat> after they return from the captivity and rebuild the, the temple and the city, is that first of all to understand that most of the Jews that were in Persia and Babylon stayed there. See, God had promised through Jeremiah that those that submitted to the captivity and that were carried away, that they would be prospered in the places that they went. They would be given land and farms, and God would bless them, and he did. Many of the Jews prospered in Babylon and Persia, and thus, once the time came that they could go back to their homelands, most of them were content to stay. They were happy with the land that they'd been given and the life that they now had. Many of them were born there in captivity. It's all they ever knew. 
And so they wanted to stay. It was only a small remnant, that 42,000, that actually returned. Those, many of them, elderly, that knew what Israel was before and that were tied to that land because they lived through the captivity. And many of them impoverished, which is an important ingredient to understand because what that implies is that the temple was built, the second temple that was rebuilt, it was built with feeble hands and Persian money. See, it wasn't the money of the people that did it. It was a lot of dedicated money and dedicated materials by Cyrus and those that were there in Persia. And that would become a cause of great conflict, as we'll see in just a few moments. But most of the Jews stayed behind. Also, Cyrus, when he allowed the people to go back into the land of Israel, he allowed them to return, but he did not allow them to reestablish the monarchy. Remember the kings? Remember what it was like when the kings were serving kind of alongside of other uh, nations like Assyria or Syria or Babylon? It didn't work out because the kings would submit for a while, but then they'd get power hungry and seek to rebel. And so Cyrus let them go back, but he would not have let them establish the monarchy. And what that then meant is that the priests became also governors in the land. It was kind of a mixing of religion and politics, and that kind of became the law of the land, and it became a, a source of great um, chaos within the ruling body. When you mix the priesthood with the governance of the land, you're always going to have problems. And that's exactly what happened to them there. The people began to use religion to leverage political action, and they began to use political uh, positions to leverage their religion. And the religious sect divisions were augmented by attaching the political structures to them. And we understand the complications of that. I mean, many, any of you that watched uh, our president's remarks at the prayer breakfast last week and you heard the things that he had to say, what he was doing is that he was using religion to leverage political interests. And that's always what happens when you mix religion and politics. And that became the structure uh, of the day during that time. It's also worth mentioning uh, that it was at this time that the Council of Sages was formed. And what that was was a group of 70 elders that were more or less a form of a congress in Israel known in New Testament times as the Sanhedrin. You'll recognize that name. And especially as we get into the New Testament, that will come up and you'll say, oh, okay, that's where the Sanhedrin came from. It was kind of the way that they brought stability to the political atmosphere and kept things in line, streamlined during these days of political turmoil and chaos. So the Council of Sages, 70 elders, it became the Sanhedrin. That had its origin uh, in this time. Also after the uh, captivity, you had the establishment of synagogues throughout the land. See, while the Jews were in Babylon, they couldn't go to temple. There was no temple. There was no place for them to worship. And so the way that they would assemble and worship and kind of maintain their national identity and their connection with God is that they would form these Bet Knessets or houses of meeting, which later became known as synagogues, where they would get together to pray and talk Torah and to fellowship together and to encourage one another. Well, that kind of gained steam. They liked that atmosphere. And so when they came back into the land, they began to form these meeting houses or synagogues where the people would get together in the various towns. And really, that's the foundation for what we're doing right now. 
So they didn't do this most of the time prior to the captivity. It was afterwards when the synagogues were established that people would get together to search the scriptures and pray. And so the synagogues uh, were, were spread throughout the land after they came back from the captivity, which we see throughout the Gospels constantly, synagogues in various places. And you almost say, well, where does that come from? I mean, we just read the whole Old Testament, and we never read anything about a synagogue. And now here we are. Where, where, what are these things? That's what they are. Also, during that time, right after the captivity, God raised up prophets during the years of rebuilding and reestablishing. You have the book in your Bible, the Old Testament book of Haggai. And Haggai was raised up during that time to encourage and exhort the people to finish what they had begun. It was not easy what they had to undertake to rebuild the temple and the city. I mean, there was oppression, there was poverty, there was sickness, there was every type of obstacle you could possibly fathom to try to restrict them from doing what God had given them to do in that time. And so Haggai was raised up to encourage them to finish the work. Zechariah the prophet was also sent by God at this time, and his ministry was to point them forward to the coming of the Messiah, who would only be just a few hundred years from uh, from his coming onto the scene. And so Zechariah is sent to remind them of their purpose as a nation And then lastly, the Old Testament prophet Malachi, which is the last book that we have in the Old Testament. And and, and Malachi reveals the moral conditions of those days. And then he gives the final prophecy concerning the coming of John the Baptist, which will be the forerunner of Christ. And so Malachi is sent. And at the end of Malachi's testimony, the Old Testament period closes. It's ended. It's over. The Old Testament record stops. Now, here's the interesting thing is that we're still 400 years from the time that Jesus Christ will come into the world. Which brings us now to that period between the Old and New Testament, and it's known as, scripturally or theologically, as the silent years. And the reason it's called the silent years is because there was no revelation of God that was given during that time. There were no prophets that were raised up to prophesy. It was a time where God was essentially silent in his work in the world for those 400 years. Now, though they were silent from heaven's perspective, they were by no means quiet on earth because there was a lot of things that took place during those uh, 400 years. First of all, there was great political chaos amongst the people of God. Now, as I said before, the main source of this disjointed leadership or the schisms centered around the temple. It was very controversial, the temple, the second temple, for these reasons. First of all, because it was constructed with Persian money and by Persian edict, and so many of the people rejected it. Also, the glory of the second temple was eclipsed by the memory of the glory of Solomon's temple. The second temple paled in comparison to what they had left behind. Many of the people were discouraged. In fact, there's some records that tell us that the people, when they saw the second temple completed, they wept because they remembered the former glory and they thought this doesn't even hold a candle to that. And so they looked at it as less than or inferior or in some way invalid. In other ways, there was some of the ritual that was revived and renewed, but there was some that wasn't. Not all of it was. And so many people rejected the second temple, and it became a cause for political dispute and debate. Now, out of that chaos, there were four sects, or if you would, you could say political parties that were religious that emerged out of that. The first and the largest, of course, was that known as the Pharisees. 
Now again, that's another word that we see constantly come up through the New Testament that we never saw once in the Old Testament. Where did the Pharisees come from? This is where they came from. What the Pharisees were was a sect of about 6,000, and they would maintain that number of 6,000, making it something that you had to uh, attain access to or that you would gain by heritage or being born into it. And, And what the Pharisees were is basically separatists. That's what the word meant, was that they were separate. And they were committed to the most staunch, legalistic interpretation of the Torah or of the law that anyone had ever known. They were motivated by the drive to never be brought into captivity again. And they took it upon themselves as their mission to be God's legal voice in the world, to set right from wrong so that the people never again fall to the depths where God has to cast them from the land. Now here's the ironic thing, that it was that very staunch legalistic attitude that caused them to lose the land again. Why? Because they missed Christ. They were so legalistic and staunch that they couldn't recognize God when he was walking amongst them. Very ironic thing. But it was the Pharisees that introduced the Mishnah and the Talmud and the oral law or the traditions uh, and the Midrash and the Kabbal. All of those things emerged as their interpretation of the law adding to the law and it became a source of great contention, especially in Jesus' day. I mean, how many times did Jesus rebuke the Pharisees for adding to the word of God, making the word of God of no effect through their traditions? But that's who the Pharisees uh, were, very legalistic, staunch, um, religious people. Now, to counter that, the second sect that emerged was then the Sadducees. And again, another name that we're familiar with as we read in the New Testament. The, The Sadducees were a smaller group, but in some ways they were more powerful because they were made up of elitist priests. The money really was with the Sadducees. They had the wealth. And they were intended to counter the Pharisees. And where the Pharisees were very staunch and legalistic, the Sadducees went way to the other end of the spectrum. They were very liberal and loose. They didn't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, that the Word of God was inspired by God. They didn't believe in absolutes. They didn't believe in anything supernatural, resurrections, angels, nothing that you couldn't see with your eyes. So everything had to be tangible. And thus, through their traditions, they discounted much of the word of God. So you see these two extremes. On the right, you had this staunch group of Pharisees. And then on the far left, you had this liberal group of Sadducees that basically said anything goes. Now, to add to that, you also had the Essenes. And they were kind of a non-religious political group that rejected the new systems in favor of a pre-captive setup. And they were more or less secular activists, a very non-influential voice in that day. And then finally, the fourth group is that you had the Zealots. And the Zealots were an anti-Persian, then anti-Roman revolutionary group uh, that that just wanted to throw off every bit of, uh, of control from everyone else and just be a sovereign nation in and of themselves. And that was a group that existed well into Jesus' day. In fact, two, at least two, of the apostles claimed allegiance to this group. We read of Simon Zelotes, or Simon the Zealot, and of course, Judas Iscariot, who, was, who never really let go of that position. He was a revolutionary from the very beginning, and once he found out that Jesus wasn't a revolutionary uh, in the context that he thought, that's when he betrayed Jesus. And so the Zealots were a very um, zealous <laughs> go figure, a group of people 
that were committed um, to just throwing off any piece of authority whatsoever. And so you had these four parties that kind of emerged out of the political chaos of those um, days that they were in. Now, if we set Israel aside for a minute, having seen kind of what took place with them during that 400 years uh, of silence when there was no revelation, there's also another significant change that's taking place. When we leave off in the book of Malachi, at the end of the Old Testament, the Persian Empire is still in control. But by the time we come into the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, we have a whole new empire ruling. It's the Roman Empire now. And we read about Herod. Well, how did that happen? How did they go from the Persian Empire ruling the world to now the Roman Empire, which is way on the other side of Israel? What transition took place to bring that to pass? We'll share that with you for just a minute. As the Medo-Persian Empire was losing strength, and it really happened over the course of about 100 years, from 400 to 300 BC, there was a man from Macedonia named Philip. He became known as Philip the Macedon. And he was gaining strength for the Grecian Empire, and he was beginning to take territory in their name. Well, Philip had a son whose name was Alex. And Alex was a scholar. He was a real smart young man, and he was a bookworm, and very much kept to himself. Well, while Philip was on one of his expeditions in the area of Persia, Philip was killed in the battle. And Alex, who would later become known as Alexander the Great, was enraged and fueled by vengeance because of what happened to his father, Philip. And so he assembled his father's troop, and he went on a rampage. He became almost bloodthirsty. And he was from the age of 19 until the age of 31, so just 11 or 12 years of his life, Alexander the Great conquered the whole known world, bringing the Grecian Empire now to the forefront, replacing Persia now with the influence of Greece. When Alexander was 31 years old and he had conquered the whole world, he asked his generals, what next? And they said, there's no land left to conquer. And when Alexander had nowhere else to conquer, he slipped into a depression and he became an alcoholic. And he caught pneumonia and he died shortly thereafter. But when he was dying, he was asked by one of his uh, closest advisors, what shall we do with the kingdom? And Alexander's last words were, give it to the strong. And so the Grecian Empire was then divided into four segments to his four strongest generals. Now, the two that are most important to us are, first of all, Ptolemy, because he was set over the area of Egypt. And then, second of all, Seleucid, who was set over the area of Syria. Now, if you can picture Israel in your mind, to their north is Syria, and to the south is Egypt. And they became kind of the battleground for the wars that broke forth between the Seleucid dynasty and the Ptolemy dynasty, or that which was in Egypt. And so Israel, for those years, those hundred years, was sandwiched between an anvil and a hammer, as the historian Josephus puts it. And and that became an aggressive area of the world to live in in those days. Well, after Seleucid passes and a couple of his descendants take over, we come to a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. Perhaps that name might resonate with some of you that know history just a little bit. He was elevated to become the leader of the Seleucid dynasty, and he had a pure hatred for the Jews. And so he overtook Israel, and he invaded Jerusalem, 
And at that time, he slaughtered a countless number of Jews. He made it illegal to become a Jewish person or to practice Judaism in any form. He went into the temple and he stripped it of all of its gold and its treasures and whatever that it had. And he built an altar to Zeus on top of the altar to God. And then he slaughtered a pig upon it. It was an action that was known as the abomination that causes desolation. Because when he did that, he offered an unclean animal and spilled its blood upon the altar of God. It was an abominable act and it brought the desolation of the temple. The temple was no longer in use after that. Now let me just give a little parenthetical here real quick without subverting you from the track of our history. It's interesting, isn't it? that Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 spoke of the abomination of desolation as something that would happen yet future, meaning that that was the short-term fulfillment of Daniel chapter 9, but the long-term fulfillment of it is yet to come. That's free. Come back now to the history uh, <laughs> Alexander, or I'm sorry, of, of uh, um, Antiochus uh, Epiphanes in this thing. Now, there, there was another thing that happened during, and, and Antiochus only had three years in Israel before he was ousted. And we'll get to that in just a minute. But there was something that happened during the time of Antiochus Epiphanes that has New Testament significance. And it concerns the group of people known as the Samaritans. You recall the Samaritans were a mixed breed of Assyrians and Jews that had populated in the northern areas of Israel during the captivity. And the Samaritans and the true Jews had a rift. They didn't accept each other. But that rift was even deepened during the days of Antiochus. And the reason was this, that Antiochus Epiphanes came into the region of Samaria and because they claimed to be Jews and they claimed the religion of Jacob, he was going to treat them with the same contempt he had treated those in Jerusalem. But when Antiochus came in, the people all got together and they said, no, 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 no. We renounce the God of Israel. And the altar that you see here is actually an altar to Zeus. And they caved in and capitulated to the gods of Antiochus in order to save their skin. And so they were seen as rejects. They rejected the God of Israel in that time. And therefore, the rift that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans was deepened even more. Now, we're not going to study John chapter 4 in our journey through the book of Luke, but it makes Jesus' trip to Samaria all the more significant when you realize how much the Jews hated the Samaritans, when you realize how much Jesus loved them. Amazing. Maybe you're here tonight, and that's part of your past. Maybe there's a point in your history where you capitulated and you denied the Lord in some way, and you feel tonight like you're cursed. Maybe you need to know this, is that Jesus, just like he visited the Samaritans and he extended mercy to them, he'll extend mercy to you too. And he loves Jesus loves Samaritans. Well, anyways, that's significant as we, uh, we go into the New Testament and we see the Samaritans. It's good to know um, why they were so hated and detested. Well, three years after Antiochus Epiphanes slaughtered a pig upon the altar, he moved into the town of Modin, which is just outside of Jerusalem. And one of his generals there gathered the elders of the town and he confronted a man named Mattathias, who was a very influential man in that town, that little city of Modin. And he said, hey, we need you to offer a sacrifice to Zeus and let all of the other people see you so that they will follow along and we don't have to have a bloodbath here. And Mattathias refused. When he refused, another man stepped forward and said, I'll do it. 
When he said that, Mattathias grabbed his sword, slaughtered the man who said, I'll do it, and then proceeded to kill the general that was asking them to make the sacrifice. And what that began was something that was called the Maccabean Revolt. Mattathias had a son whose name was Judas, Judas Maccabeus. And that was a nickname given to him by his father because Maccabeus meant the hammer. And Judas was a very uh, battle-ready um, and very energized person. And so as this Maccabean revolt be, uh, you know, began, it immediately gained steam. And those that were with them immediately moved into Jerusalem and they recaptured the city. And when they recaptured the city, they went into the temple and they cleansed it out. Judas Maccabeus being the one that went through and cleansed the temple himself. And during that time that he was cleansing the temple and rededicating it to the Lord, they found in the temple only one small vial of oil. Enough oil to keep a menorah or the lampstand burning for one full day. But he put that oil into the lampstand, having only one, and the oil fueled that lampstand for an eight-day period of time. It became known as the Feast of Dedication or Rededication or the Feast of Lights or Hanukkah or Hanukkah as we call it today. Now here's an interesting fact about that and, and it really doesn't relate to the study, but again, I'm giving freebies out left and right tonight. When Antiochus Epiphanes went into the temple and defiled it, the historian records the date as December 25th that he did that on, the day that the temple was defiled, December 25th. Well, amazingly, it was exactly three years later to the day that Judas Maccabeus went in and purified the temple. It happened on December 25th, which is why that season is the season when Hanukkah is celebrated uh, in that. So again, the Feast of Dedication, and you'll see that in the New Testament. You almost say, okay, well, what's this Feast of Dedication? Because it says in John, Jesus went to the Feast of Dedication. We don't see that in Leviticus. Where does that come from? It comes from this period of Israel's history, the Maccabean Revolt, uh, when, when Jerusalem was recaptured uh, and, and uh, Antiochus was eliminated from his place of influence among them. Well, Mattathias and Judas Maccabeus, these two uh, men, start a dynasty of ruling Jews called the Hasmoneans. And it was mostly ruled by Pharisees, and they held influence for about 100 years. So by, in our timeline, we're, we're, we're going from about, um, about 167 B.C. down to about 63 B.C. And so that 100-year span of time, we're getting closer to the coming of Christ. Israel was ruled by the Hasmoneans, or the descendants of the Maccabees, and few, if any of them, had the kind of honor that Judas uh, Maccabeus has. And so uh, there was more chaos that ensued because of the power-hungry priests and people that were ruling during that time. And it was a time of chaos and civil war. And about 100 years after that time, so now we're at about 63 BC, a civil war broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees that was so severe and so extreme that the Roman emperor, or yeah, the Roman emperor, Pompey, intervened in order to stop the battle. And at that time, Rome captured uh, Israel. And Pompey, the emperor, put one of his generals over Judea, a man whose name was Antipater, who then 20 years later was appointed by Julius Caesar to be the king of the Jews. So Antipater was set over this uh, thing, and he worked his son 
into a position of being the prefect or the governor of Galilee, and his name was Herod. And Herod, upon the death of his father Antipater, was then made the ruler over that um, land, called, it was Herod actually, that was called uh, the king of the Jews, married the daughter of one of the Hasmonean rulers and appointed her brother to be the high priest. Now you say, what in the world is all that? It's chaos. That's what it is. And that's all you need to remember. You don't have to remember even one of those names, even though I know you'll remember uh, the name Herod. But it was Herod who was an absolute genius, a ruthless man, but a great architect. And it was Herod who took the temple and out of a political gesture to the Jews and also to his new wife, who was of Jewish descent, he put addition onto the temple, beautified it, and he made what would be the glorification of the second temple or turning it into what would become Herod's temple or the temple that existed within Jesus' day. And so Herod now is ruling from that time, uh, 47 BC, down to, and it brings us all the way to the days that we will begin in our study next week uh, when we study the book of Luke. So just a couple of things um, now that I'd like to point out. That's the history of Israel and how we got from the captivity all the way down to the coming of Christ. But there's a few more things just quickly I'd like to address. Number one is language. In the Old Testament, we know that all of the books were written in the Jews' language of Hebrew. But by the time we get to the New Testament, the New Testament isn't written in Hebrew. The New Testament is written in Aramaic and Greek. So why? Well, Aramaic was the language of the Babylonians. And when the children of Israel were carried away, that became their first language. When they returned from the captivity, they no longer spoke Hebrew. They spoke Aramaic, and they spoke that in Israel. That became the first language of the people, and thus the reason for the Aramaic language being used in the writings of the New Testament. Also, the other language that's used, employed, uh, and, and that really was the dominant language of the New Testament times was the Greek language, or the Grecian uh, Roman language. And the reason for that was this, is that when Alexander the Great conquered the whole known world, He made it mandatory that everyone would speak Greek and that the whole world was unified under his authority and he wanted people to be able to communicate with each other. And so Greek, although Aramaic was kind of the first language of the Jews, Greek was the common language to all. And almost everyone spoke Greek within those days. Now the result of that, the Greek language being the dominant language in the Roman Empire, was the birth of a new Bible version. That Bible version became known as the Septuagint. And what the Septuagint was, was a Hebrew translation into Greek of the Old Testament Bible. It was done by 70 Jewish scholars in Alexandria, Egypt, uh, and they spent, um, from, they spent a period of 45 years translating the Hebrew into Greek, the Bible version that's called the Septuagint. And the reason that's important to bring up in this study is because the Septuagint um, was quoted or used by the New Testament authors, including Jesus. So it comes up frequently that that was considered by God to be a valid translation of the scriptures in Jesus' day, this Greek translation of uh, the Hebrew Bible. Another thing I want to address really quickly, and I get this question from time to time, is why is it that the apocryphal books are not included in what we consider to be our Bible? If you ever get your hands on a Catholic Bible or you come from a Catholic background, 
you'll recognize that there's a bunch of books in the Catholic Bible that don't exist in the King James or the New King James or the modern translations that we use. And people wonder sometimes, why is it? Why aren't those books included in the canon? Well, there's two reasons, and I, and I, I mean, God might have a totally different answer to this than I do, but uh, this is the best that I can give you, and I believe that there's validity to it. First of all, there was no new revelation of God that took place during those years. There was incredible things that happened. When you read about the Maccabean revolt and Judas Maccabeus, you feel like you're reading the story of Samson or of Gideon, you know, the great men of God of old. When you read about the menorah burning for eight days, and you know, that's ascribed to be a miracle of God. We say, wow, why isn't that in the Bible? Well, really, it doesn't reveal anything about God that hasn't already been revealed. I mean, we know that God comes upon people for the purpose of battle. We know that God's going to give his people victory. That's already been established by God. So there was no new revelation in anything that happened during that 400 years. The other reason that those books are considered to be non-inspired is this, is that the rift between the sects, the various facets of Judaism, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Zealots, the rift was so sharp that all of those writers that wrote and recorded the history in those days went to extra-biblical extremes to cement their claims, and that those extremes are reflected in the writings. So when you read the book of Maccabees or the book of Tobit or whatever those are that are the apocryphal books, what you'll find in them are things that are extra-biblical snippets or vignettes that cement the positions of the Pharisees and the Sadducees that were extra-biblical positions. Do you understand? The mixing of politics and religion caused bias in the hand and the pen of the writers. And thus the conclusion is that those writers, though they are historical, they were not inspired by God. Do you understand? A prophet of God will always be politically unbiased. That will always be the mark of a prophet. They will not interject their personal views about things or go to extra biblical lengths in their authority in order to spin things. And so uh, the books of the Apocrypha, uh, they're great history, but they're not inspired by God. And then one more thing. The Roman expansion, the expansion of the Roman Empire, uh, resulted in not only the expansion of the Greek language, but it also resulted in the development of travel. The Romans were known for the road structures that they constructed all the way throughout the Roman Empire. I've never been to uh, you know, the Roman Empire, but what I read this week is that the roads that they made were so well made that many of them exist even to this day. That you see the way that they were constructed and they, they were just well made roads. And what that did is it created a platform for the spreading forth of the gospel. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, the Apostle Paul says this, and it's a great verse. He says, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. When the fullness of time was come. Why is it that God waited 4,000 years of man's history to bring his son into the world? Why not sooner? Why not do it at the very beginning and then let the gospel go forward for 6,000 years? Why not till the 4,000th year? Here's what God did. God raised up Israel as a nation to bring forth the king and prepare the way for the Savior to come. Then God used the Grecian Empire to unify the language of all the nations. 
And then God used the Roman Empire to connect that world all together with a system of roads so that at just the right time, he could send his son into the world who would then pay the price to ransom mankind from the plight of sin and then give the gospel message to his servants with a common language and a system of roads wherein they could carry it to the whole world. And so we see the hand of God throughout the history from Genesis 1-1 all the way to the incarnation of his son preparing all things so that his son could come into the world and be the light into the world and then become the propitiation for our sins. You might be here tonight and you might be going through in your own life what you might call the silent years where you look at the situation and the circumstance that are going on in your life and you can maybe even barely remember the last time God spoke to you or what God is doing in your life. Or if God even loves you, you forgot what it even sounds like. And you look at all the things that are happening in what used to be stability, or at least structure, something that you could stand upon a little bit. Now you look at your life and you say, where in the world is this going? I I don't even know where where I am right now in my life. And God seems so far away. I, I I don't know if I'd recognize him if he showed up in my face. Understand this. Is that God is always working behind the scenes prepare the future for his people. And that's true for them collectively, as we see with Israel. But it's also true with us individually. And the anomaly and the puzzling and sometimes frustrating thing about walking with the Lord is that the windshield is always very blurry. And it's only in the rearview mirror that we can see things very clearly. Haven't you found that to be true? I mean, when you're looking forward in your life, you say, I cannot figure out how any of this is possibly going to work out. But yet at any time, if you look in the rearview mirror of your life and you see the way you've been led, you can say, man, God, you've been faithful. You haven't let me go, and I can see how A and B led to where I am now. I just can't see how where I am now is going to lead to X, Y, and Z. Understand this, is that God always has his hands on the control, and his ways are as high as the heavens above our ways, and they are past finding out. You will never be able to figure out how he's going to use the things you're going through right now to bring you to where he ultimately intends to bring you. But know this, he's going to bring you there. And he will not fail. Not one ounce of life will be wasted. He will use every last piece of it. And so next week we'll begin our study of the book of Luke and our study of the life and the ministry of God's Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much that you haven't left yourself without testimony in this world. And you have done such an incredible thing in laying before this, this us this book of life. We are so grateful, Lord, for who you are and for the work that you do within us. We're asking tonight, Lord, as we look at the interwoven tapestry of history and how it was all controlled and ordained by you so that you could send your son into the world. Lord, we so desire that our lives would be a reflection of that same work and that same hand. And so tonight, Lord, areas where we have taken back control, we desire to yield those things back to you again that you would be the Lord and the Savior of our lives. 
And Father, as we move forward and we begin to study Jesus, and we begin to hear his words and see his manner and the example that he gives us of you, our desire, Lord, is that we would be changed and transformed and that our hearts would be lifted as we recognize who you are through the person of Christ. So prepare our hearts for that study, Lord. And may we be truly changed by the ministry of your Holy Spirit as you breathe upon the word and speak it into our lives. We ask that you'd go with us tonight, Lord, in the joy of the Lord, that you would be our strength, that you would be our hope, and that we would know you. May we know you. Bless your people tonight, O Lord. And may we walk worthy of you, bringing you great pleasure. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand.